Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The absence of a really clear political project at the heart of the Labour leadership makes it much harder for the attack unit to do its job. Hello and welcome to Political Fix, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, Lucy Fisher. You heard there Stephen Bush talking about the toothlessness of the Labour Party. More from him later. Coming up, it's almost time to wave goodbye to the British summer. Could Rishi Sunak also be waving off some of his cabinet? We'll share the latest reshuffle rumours. Plus cars, whiskey and work visas. What will it take to cement a UK-India trade deal? And the Trump circus gathers momentum in the US. As 2024 is shaping up to be a big year for elections on both sides of the pond, we ask, what does the US race mean for the UK? Joining me to discuss all of that are FT columnist Stephen Bush. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Lucy. And the FT's political editor, George Parker. Hello, Lucy. So, George, firstly, uh, you kick us off. What's been your moment of the week? Well, it's a story I've sort of been interested in for a while, which is this question about when are we actually ever going to start conducting checks on food products coming into Britain from the EU. Of course, these were introduced on products going the other way back in 2021. And much to the fury of British farmers who feel they're operating on an uneven playing field, these checks haven't been implemented in the UK. And so we discovered this week that um, for the fifth time, the checks are going to be delayed. They're going to be introduced now, we think, sometime around April 2024. Some listeners will notice that's quite near to a general election. There's a fair amount of scepticism about whether these checks will actually ever be introduced this side of the election. And there are some people like Jacob Rees-Mogg who say, fine, leave the doors open. European food's pretty well regulated. But it certainly doesn't sound like taking back control. Stephen, how about you? So mine is the Office for National Statistics releasing uh, a report of what it basically thinks is a superior measure of core inflation, showing that core inflation actually has now started to fall. And obviously, uh, for reasons we've discussed many, many a time, that inflation target, I think, is going to be, you know, both really huge in terms of the pain for households, but in terms of the mood music around the government, I think really is the kind of target to watch, as it were. For me this week, I have to say, uh, it has been the spectacular uh, death, as we understand it, of Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the curbside hot dog seller who rose to become the Kremlin caterer. Uh, and then, of course, the head of one of the biggest private militias in the world before being literally blown out of the sky. Um, not quite connected to British politics, but um, if I can shoehorn that in one relevant link, I too have been writing about it this week, uh, only in the sense that the British government is about to prescribe the Wagner Group as a terrorist organisation, as I understand it. I can't say, Lucy, that it's one of those stories which, I mean, obviously has geopolitical ramifications, but from a journalistic point of view, it's the narrative arc. Of, it's, it's bookended this summer, hasn't it? The mutiny by Prigozhin at the start of the summer and at the end of the summer, him being blown out of the sky, apparently. Well, first up, let's talk about the reshuffle. Uh, 
uh, let's face it, it's been a bit of a news desert, um, this recess, and the oasis on the horizon has been this long-touted reshuffle, but now suggestions that it might be something of a mirage, that we might just get a few tweaks around the fringes uh, of the table uh, in the next couple of weeks, and then the main event delayed till later this winter. Would that make sense to you, Stephen, just to replace Ben Wallace, who we know is going to step down as Defence Secretary? To the advantage of not doing your kind of full-blown reshuffle now is it means you aren't going into your party conference with a bunch of new ministers who are going, you know, where's the canteen? How, you know, how do I get my standing desk installed? Look, broadly speaking, there are essentially two schools of thought about what Rishi should do, right, in the next 18 months. There's the governing to the last hour school of thought, and there's the gear up and get into campaign mode. But regardless of where you sit on that debate, the advantage to doing your reshuffle earlier is you either get into fight mode earlier, or you fix some of the, I would say, very real problems, particularly on, you know, the kind of key issues of crime, health, um, they don't have a cabinet minister who I would say has a good grip on it and who has a dividing line that's in a good place for them. So, yeah, if I were in Rishi's shoes, I would do the reshuffle as soon as possible because I'd say obviously the government does need some kind of change. George, what do you think? And, and also to Stephen's point about um, not putting new ministers into the line of fire uh, at conference, he does potentially avoid having disgruntled, demoted um, mm. ex-ministers speaking out and making mischief on the fringe uh, events. But but does it make sense in this strategic uh, level to delay the bigger reshuffle? Well, I've, I've always been a little bit on the sceptical end of the argument about how much difference these reshuffles actually make, certainly in terms of public perception. Reshuffle is always more useful hanging in the air. Um, you're always stronger as a prime minister before the reshuffle rather than immediately afterwards. So I can see the, the benefit of hanging on. I don't, I'm not that surprised it's going to be a fairly minor tweak in September. I mean, I think basically there are a whole load of ministers who are underperforming. It's true. But the fact is, as Stephen says, when you change the nameplates and get new people in, there's a whole load of disruption. He's got really, Rishi soon out now, six more months possibly max to actually do things in government and yeah changing a few ministers could make a difference but I think what you should focus on now is just trying to get some things done I think you made this point in your column this week Stephen that you know you might as well this might be his moment to have a political legacy focus on getting things done and then change your cabinet into a campaigning cabinet because what we're really talking about is putting new faces in who are going to be the people who are going to be out on the TV cameras in the TV studios um, fronting the campaign so a completely different look but I don't think now's the, now's the moment to move into that campaign mode. When it does come to that moment, Stephen, uh, I know you've written this week about um, Lee Anderson being one of the key kind of attack dogs he's got in position, but pretty much um, the only person playing that role. And as you pointed out, as much at risk of biting his masters as the party's political opponents. Um, who would you see Rishi Sunak, or who would you advise him trying to get into that role to be um, a key performer out on the media, really taking the fight to the Labour Party? Well, I think the the joy of being in government is you can kind of get away with anyone having that role. I, I to be honest, would actually go, it needs to be someone who is basically just willing to say anything 
to shred their own reputation by saying the things that you yourself as prime minister don't want to aerate. So for me, it feels like it's a job which should go to a, a loyal ally who doesn't get scared in the face of difficult um, headlines. So one of the people who was very much in the trenches with him in that first leadership election when it was not in their interest to do so. So I think that is one of the advantages of John Glenn as defence secretary, right? John Glenn, of course, uh, currently being chief secretary to the Treasury. Defence secretary has a huge amount of gravitas, so you can't say no to it if you're the BBC or the I- or ITV. John Glenn is hugely loyal, and so he therefore will presumably be very comfortable saying whatever it is the focus groups and the polls spit out as the best possible set of uh, nasty things to say about Labour and the Liberal Democrats. And George, there's this sort of um, logic that some people talk up, and I know it's a live uh, debate in, in Downing Street, about the need to get rid of anyone stepping down as an MP at the next election from the government. So that's not just what well, Ben Wallace has already um, announced he's stepping down, but the suggestion Alistair Jack will have to go as Scottish Secretary, um, Trudy Harrison as an Environment Minister, Will Quince as a Health Minister, Deanna Davison as Leveling Up Minister. Does that make sense to you? I mean, to me, it seems there's a sort of uh, another argument to be made that these are people who don't have to sort of spend time and effort in their constituency trying to corral votes so they could do more delivering at the centre. I think you're right from a management point of view you're better off leaving them there to do a job as a minister although in the greater scheme of things you know we're getting to the fag end of the parliament and we're talking about public perception to a large extent here it's not going to make a massive difference if you move around ministers that Many people, no one's have, heard of. No, many people have never never heard of. Just on, on in terms of who's going to be the attack um, messenger for Rishi Sunak, I think the public don't like that sort of real hard-nosed, sort of nasty attack stuff. So I think you want people fronting that sort of operation who are sound reasonable. And I agree with Stephen, someone like John Glenn would be quite good. It's one of the reasons why someone like Grant Shapps is actually you know, moderately plausible in that respect. Michael Gove's good at it, but he's quite a divisive figure. Um, so I think you want people who sort of sound like they're being reasonable whilst being prepared to wield the stiletto. And George, if um, shuffling uh, ministers doesn't really uh, grab the public's uh, attention, and I fear you might be right as much as it's grist to us uh, political yeah. watchers, um, what else is coming down the track that interests you of substance this autumn? We've got the autumn statement, of course. You've been writing a bit about that. I mean, there are two really big fiscal events between now and the election, we, we assume, which will be the autumn statement in November and then the budget next spring. And the slightly better economic news is putting pressure on Jeremy Hunt to start cutting taxes as soon as November. I think to a large extent, he'll resist that pressure. I don't think he thinks it's the right time to be doing it. It muddies the political message that you're cutting taxes at the same time as taking tough decisions, trying to bear down in, on inflation. And certainly there are some ta- some taxes which could be inflationary. So what I'm sort of picking up is that the autumn statement will focus on some of the themes that he was talking about in the March budget, actually. Things like getting business investment up, uh, and also this whole question about labour market inactivity. We had a package on childcare in March. I think we'll expect to see a little bit more on health and the fact that there's so many people currently out of work and on long-term sickness benefits. So I think those are two of the things that, that are coming up. And then, you know, there are a couple of big sort of uh, foreign trips coming up, aren't there? Of course, there's the G20 summit in India. And then a bit of a question mark about whether the Prime Minister goes off to the uh, UN General Assembly in later in September in New York, which is a sort of a fixture for British prime ministers. And if he doesn't go, I think there'll be some eyebrows raised. 
Stephen, what about Labour? I mean, to me, it makes some sense that they've sat back and allowed the car crash weeks of um, small boats and and health to sort of allow the government to to burn while they sort of keep their counsel. But have they missed a trick not making the most of the of the news desert I mentioned this summer? And what what does Keir Starmer need to do to get on the front foot as we get back to Parliament? In terms of the sort of the news desert, right? Given that everyone thinks this parliament will run long, actually they are still right to kind of hang back silently, work out what their retail offers will be and announce them near the election. But what I think is very noticeable is that uh, the Labour Party does not have a particularly good attack operation either. Now, I was about to say no one. I'm sure some eccentric people would say that they yearn for the uh, Ed Miliband era uh, compared to the Keir Starmer era. I mean, many Conservatives would for obvious reasons. (laughs) But one of the ways that that operation was sharper than the Keir Starmer operation is they did have a much better attack unit, right? If you think about the fact that we've essentially had a summer in which we've had essentially the Conservative Party running around the country going, hey, we failed. Um, And the Labour Party, I think, you know, as Keir Starmer contemplates his own reshuffle, one of the questions he should be asking himself is, okay, who is the person who's going to do what Michael Duggar did for Ed Miliband in the run-up to 2015, what various party chairs did for for Tony Blair in the 90s and noughties, essentially being the person who goes around and does that, I sound reasonable, but I'm actually saying something pretty horrible about the other lot. Um, Because that, I think, is the thing they are really missing at the moment. And, you know, when the government makes a mistake, really the friendly fire comes from other people in the Tory party. The Labour Party hasn't really at all, I think, got to that point of, of being unpleasant to live with in the way that, you know, I think, Many in the Labour Party found you know, Cameron's Conservatives unpleasant to live with day to day. And actually, I mean, the reason why it's possible to overstate this is I remember someone uh, in Cameron's Inner Circle saying to me you know, a couple of weeks before Ed Miliband lost the 2015 election, saying, well, the thing is, Ed's had a lot of great weeks, but I don't think he ever ha- has ever had a particularly good month. But Labour does, I think, need to get better at having good weeks where it gets the Conservatives on the back foot a bit on policy. And they're just so cautious, stroke disciplined, aren't they, mm. at the moment? And we had this um, interesting example this week where the High Pay Centre had calculated that FTSE 100 chief executives had had a half a million pound pay rise in the last year. TUC weighed in, greedflation. Even Downing Street said people should be prepared to justify this kind of award in a cost of living crisis. We went to the Labour Party for comments. I think we'll give that a swerve. I think that's really interesting. And it's very different, as Stephen says. I'm, I remember um, working in the great Robert Peston's political team back in the 90s, just ahead of the 97 election, in the days when we had fax machines. And every weekend on a Sunday at about four o'clock, the fax machine would whir into action. It would be a fax from Stephen Byers or Alan Milburn to the aspiring future cabinet ministers, as it, as it turned out, with attack not just attacks on the government, John Major's government, but stories that they'd sort of dug out from obscure data or written parliamentary questions that that people would write up. You know, it was a much more professional operation. Mm. Yeah. It's really interesting what you're both saying. I mean, why do you think that is? Does this stem from the top? Is it Keir Starmer lacks the killer instinct or the ruthlessness? Is he too sort of decent? Does he not want that sort of operation to go on? Or is it sort of the fact that he's overlooked the importance of this kind of operation? I think the absence of a really clear political project at the heart of the Labour leadership makes it much harder for the attack unit to do its job for two reasons. One, uh, the Labour Party has a huge number of people working on policy because their way they approach this, how do you, what do you stand for, is basically like, oh, what we need is another, like, 
40 billion micro policies on like some niche issues and is of no interest if you're an opposition party. And those people's time would be much better spent doing that meat and drink of good opposition, which is going through government policy and going, where can we find a weakness? Where have they messed up this week? Where can we get at them? But in addition to being a resourcing problem, essentially, if you think about um, Blair and Cameron, what was Cameron's big sort of political kind of thought? It was basically, I look at New Labour and I go, we accept the social liberalisation, but we'll have more tax cuts. Tony Blair basically went, we accept Thatcherism, but we will have a, a more generous state. And once you've set down those parameters, that allows your attack unit to go, OK, right, so we can work out what's out of bounds as an attack and we can work out what's inbounds. But because there hasn't been that similar sort of what's out of bounds, what's inbound from the Labour leadership, as George said, they are so cautious. Mm. They're like a, you know, they're like a football team that like, has taken off all of its attackers. So it just kind of sits there absorbing wave after wave of attack, which if you win like, one nil looks like great, but if you ship two late goals, everyone laughs at you. And the, and the thing is, how do you do left centre-left politics in an era of no money? The traditional answer that Labour front benches would give when they're asked, what would you do about it, would be to give the impression you'd spend more money. That's the problem, I think, with yeah. Labour going on the attack. They go into a radio studio, they have 30 seconds attacking the Tories. The next five minutes, so, well, what would you do, you do about it? And the answer is, there isn't an answer. Let's move on now to something else that's set to become a theme of this autumn. The UK and India have intensified trade talks this week in a bid to remove significant barriers to a deal. Business and Trade Secretary Kemi Bednok has travelled to India to meet her counterpart Piyush Goyal, which sets the scene for Rishi Sunak and Narendra Modi to announce some kind of agreement in principle when the UK PM heads to Delhi for the G20 next month. Now, George, you've got the inside track on Bednok's visit uh, to India. Um, Remind us, what's at stake here? And really, how much value could a UK-India trade deal even add to the British economy if one is signed off? Well, as with all these trade deals, the amount of additional GDP they might uh, yield is often rather pathetically small. So I think by the government's own calculation, the most this is likely to yield for the UK economy in terms of extra wealth is 0.22% of GDP which obviously pales into insignificance against the lost trade we've suffered as a result of Brexit, as many people will continually point out. However, from a political point of view, it's important both on the UK side, and there are economic advantages in terms of you know, the potential for extra sales of whiskey and cars to India, where they're subject at the moment to tariffs for over 100%, also services. Uh, and also from the Indian point of view, it's important because Modi hasn't really been doing trade deals at all with any country. So from the Indian point of view, this is important politically to show that India is prepared to gradually open up an economy which is notoriously difficult to penetrate if you're a, a third country. So I think both sides see this as important, but we're into the final hard yards of the negotiation. All that grandiose talk of Boris Johnson last year about getting a deal by Diwali last October, that's come and gone. I think there's a re recognitioning the UK side that you've got to get this right. You can't be seen to be rushing against artificial deadlines. They did that with the Australia deal. You remember when Liz Truss was the Trade Secretary and subsequently that was pilloried, including by George Eustace, who was a minister in the government at the time, who said it was a complete failure. We gave away far too much to the Australians just to get the deal. So it has to be the right one. But there is this moment coming up, as you mentioned, Lucy, which is the meeting between Narendra Modi and uh, Rishi Sunak around the margins of the G20 summit in early September, which will be 
a big moment for both countries, I think. You know, I think Modi called uh, Sunak a, a living bridge for UK Indians. I think one of the strategic mistakes that Rishi Sunak made when he became prime minister is that ultimately there are um, lots of people who are very excited by the historic moment that effectively the the UK's first post-imperial prime minister, right? You know, to use that, that old phrase, he is here because we were there, right? Um, one of the big problems the Conservative Party has is they've been in power for a long time. People get sick of you and you've been in power for a long time. He does embody change in a way that, I mean, one, one of the people who finds that exciting and resonant is me, right? And I think that he has really failed to um, to use that to give him and his party a sense of freshness and newness. Um, I think partly because it felt them, like the people around him seemed to think that that conversation would happen without him sort of leading it. And I think it will be, yeah, it will be quite a, a huge moment for lots of people in the diaspora. It'll be a, one for like lots of people who've grown up in areas where there are lots of people who are from the diaspora. And it is, I th also think, crucially, a moment to say something about this government that isn't just, you know, 13 years, everything falling apart. Um, and so as, in addition to the, you know, the economic benefits, which are obviously tiny compared to what we've lost, but are still not nothing. Um, just something which reminds people that it is a historic moment and it is something that the UK, I think, should feel proud and excited about, I think is good for the government. The rollercoaster plotline of Donald Trump's political career took another turn this week. The former president faces charges in yet another state. This time it's Georgia, where he's accused of interfering with the 2020 election results, an allegation he denies. Trump also boycotted the first TV debate to choose the Republican Party's nominee in next year's US presidential election, leaving the way open for a new contender. And I find it offensive that we have professional politicians on the stage that will make a pilgrimage to Kiev, to their Pope, Zelensky, without doing the same thing for people in Maui. There you have it. Your so you the reality make America is... America less safe. You have no foreign me, policy experience, and it shows. And you know what? The, it the shows. Foreign policy... Well, that was Vivek Ramaswamy, who's never run for public office, clashing there with former UN ambassador Nikki Haley over support for Ukraine during the Fox News debate that took place on Wednesday night. Well, to take us through the latest is the FT's Lauren Feeder, who's down the line from Washington. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Lucy. So um, tell us a bit about the state of play in the US, starting with, uh, of course, um, Trump, who else? How serious are the charges against him? And is there realistically any chance that another candidate could clinch the Republican ticket? Well, if we start with Trump, the charges are very serious. They're serious in Georgia, where he's facing 13 charges relating to his attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Uh, but that's just the beginning. There are three other criminal cases as well. Add them all up. He's facing 91 felony charges. That is a lot of potential jail time. So, you know, his legal problems are serious. Uh, and we could see those intermingling with the campaign cycle. Uh, well, they're already doing so now, but certainly next year we could be having as many as four contemporaneous trials while he is campaigning for president. Uh, in terms of whether or not there is an opportunity for someone else to be the party's nominee, sure, there is an opportunity. But the polls as they stand show Trump with a commanding lead. Uh, whether you look at national opinion polls of Republican voters, whether you look at polls in places like 
Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, the key states in the American primary process that ultimately decides the candidate, he's locked up more than half of the vote at this point. Now, of course, there is still time. Things could change. But as it stands, you know, a lot of people were watching that debate this week thinking this was a contest for second place. Well, it's such an enthralling uh, story to be watching from this side of the Atlantic. Um, Tell us about the competition, such as it is. And we know that eight people took part in the Fox News um, debate this week. Some will be familiar household names to to most uh, Britons. Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. Mike Pence, the former VP. um, Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor. There were some that were perhaps less familiar to a UK audience. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, Vivek Ramaswamy, the biotech entrepreneur. Who's leading the pack at the moment? Well, you know, DeSantis is still uh, the second choice candidate, at least according to the polls, but he has really underperformed expectations. If you think back to just November of last year after the U.S. midterms, he was seen as the favorite, quite frankly. He'd won re-election in Florida, which used to be a swing state, by some 20 points. Uh, The reality is, is right now he has had several public missteps, several forced errors, quite frankly. Uh, He's reshuffled the top brass of his his campaign. And, you know, look, you'll find supporters who said he did uh, a solid performance at the debates this week. But there are a lot of people who were very uh, underwhelmed, let's say, uh, by what he brought to the table. Uh, Now, there are other people like Ramaswamy, a total political novice, a biotech entrepreneur who more recently has been writing books, kind of railing against ESG practices and investing. Uh, He's been a surprise Uh, maybe star is not the right word here, but he's certainly garnered a lot of attention. He's climbing in the polls um, and and is, well, at least this week, was getting under the skin of a lot of his competitors. Uh, You also heard there from Nikki Haley, who was the UN ambassador uh, during the Trump administration. Before that, she was the governor of South Carolina. She's the only female candidate, which is noteworthy. Um, And she has struggled in the polls so far, but a lot of Republicans were, I think, pleasantly surprised by her performance on the debate stage. In particular, just to focus it on what um, the US race means for the UK, that there's two areas I want to, to touch on. And the mm. first is around Ukraine. Like what what is this race as it as it hots up into the autumn going to mean for the consensus in the US for support for Kyiv? Mm. Well, you know, the reality is, is in the United States, uh, whether it's the presidential race, whether it's congressional politics, whether it's down to state and local level, all politics is national at this point. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that this 2024 race really sets the agenda for the party. It sets the talking points. And I think you will see that kind of setting the tone and guiding the conversation on Capitol Hill, which uh, today and in the year 2023 is, is really where the power lies in terms of Uh, holding the purse strings for further U.S. aid to Ukraine. The reality is, is among Republican voters and particularly among some of these candidates, even we have seen support for Ukraine slipping. Uh, And in some cases, some of these candidates, Ramaswamy, one of them, are are very ardently opposed to to further aid. I think all of this is setting the stage for some real uh, feisty clashes among Republicans, whether it be on the Hill, on the debate stage, about what U.S. aid for Ukraine looks like. And could that persuade uh, or encourage Joe Biden and the Democrats to sort of back off a bit in the full-throatedness of their support for Zelensky in Ukraine? 
I think that's extremely unlikely. The reality is, on Capitol Hill, some of the most senior Republicans, uh, people like Mitch McConnell, who's the top Republican on Capitol Hill, uh, are still ardent supporters of Zelensky and, you know, Kiev. And and I don't expect that to change. What we'll see is intra-party rowing, basically. And we'll see uh, more isolationist members of the party probably trying to hold up for their funding packages. In reality, you know, I'm I'm not a betting woman, but you might guess that uh, the more isolationist wing of the party will just use this as leverage to get something else that they want tacked on to any further spending packages, maybe domestic priorities, whether that be about the U.S. border with Mexico. And another question of foreign policy that, uh, again, has a huge uh, impact on the UK and the rest of the West. Where do you think that this uh, race is going to go in terms of the question about China and US-Chinese relations? Mm. I mean, I think China is one of these rare topics where we do find a lot of consensus, at least on the mood in in an increasingly uh, polarized Washington. We saw a lot of hawkishness on the on the debate stage. And, and we do see opportunities for bipartisan cooperation where Democrats and Republicans actually agree on the approach, at least economically, when it comes to uh, perhaps strengthening supply chains. Uh, we've seen cooperation between the U.S. and the U.K. in this space, um, as well as on the security side. So I think you're going to continue to hear very hawkish messages from the vast majority of these Republican candidates. Lauren, uh, a beginner's question. Under the American Constitution, is it possible that President Donald Trump could be sworn in in a prison cell? <laughs> uh, there are now some constitutional scholars coming out of the woodworks, uh, crafting arguments saying that Trump uh, would be barred from running for office if he were convicted of a crime. Uh, but that is, you know, an area rife for kind of legal arguments, I suppose. The reality is, is that most people do not see any legal hurdle from him being chained up and yet sworn in. And the reality is as well is that for three of these four criminal cases, they're federal cases, which set the stage for, and you've got to bear with me because it is bizarre, the possibility that he could be convicted, elected, then pardoned himself from from several <laughs> of those cases. The one in Georgia is, is slightly different. It's a state case. So, uh, you know, I'm getting into the weeds with you here about federal versus state law in the U.S., but the president can't pardon himself of a state-level conviction. So that could become a bit thornier. Um, but yeah, there really isn't anything written down that is stopping him from pressing ahead here. And he certainly hasn't given any indication uh, that he he wants to. In terms of the Ukraine question, should we expect here in the UK and in Europe that the Republican Party will become more isolationist over time? You know, is this kind of peak, peak hawk, as it were? You mean over the medium to long term yeah. in terms of the party's movement? I think that's probably a fair assessment to make. The reality is it has been proven over the last seven years that Donald Trump was not a one-off. He's certainly a unique figure, but he tapped into a sentiment, whether it had to do with domestic policy or foreign policy, and this the sentiment of isolationism that is not going away. And Trump's ideas are not going away, even if, whether it's not in this cycle, but say in four years' time, eight years' time, there's someone else to carry the mantle forward. I think you it's fair to expect that they will continue this America first kind of philosophy uh, in one way or another. Lauren Feeder, thanks for bringing us the picture from Washington. 
Thanks for having me. Just just a final word on this, um, uh, George and Stephen. I mean, how big a deal or not do you think that the US race is going to play in the UK regarding the election we're going to have next year? Do we think that the likes of Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer might try to contrast themselves to the sort of the bombast of, of Trump if he is the Republican nominee? I'm not sure about that. My my professional concern, Lucy, is that you and I and, and Stephen, of course, could be writing about British politics at a time when <laughs> a far more dramatic election is taking place simultaneously across the Atlantic of, of extraordinary proportions. I, I, I can't say, I mean, look, Bruce Sunak and Keir Starmer are so obviously different to, yeah. to, uh, to Donald Trump. I don't think they'll make that, that contrast. But plainly, it's going to complicate relations between the UK and America. Whoever wins the next UK election, if you've got Trump in the White House ripping up support for Ukraine, ripping up support for dealing with the climate change crisis, it just throws the whole international order up in the air, doesn't it? Yeah, I think in some ways the really weird thing about this um, presidential election is usually in Westminster, MPs and spas can't wait to talk, talk to you about what's going on in American elections. And that has isn't happening as much, I think because actually what's happening is in the sort of too horrific to contemplate buck. Like, mm. uh, Ultimately, right, right. there's going to be a debate in the Conservative Party about uh, cutting taxes. There is an ongoing sort of the Labour Party pretending it won't increase spending on the public services when we all know it will, right? What, what powered the ability to cut taxes or raise public spending in Europe? It was A, the end of the Cold War and being able to shelter under the protective umbrella of American power. Well, broadly speaking, the big picture here is that... America has heard about the broad umbrella of American power going, well, that doesn't sound like a fun gig for us. Essentially, there are broadly two camps in Westminster. There's a bit of the Conservative Party, um, which has this delusion that the right form of words and the right state visit will turn Donald Trump in to Reagan or George H.W. Bush and it'll it'll all be fine again. And then there's the rest of the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, which essentially has a, oh, well, this has quite big implications for what we ourselves can spend money on and our own security situation. Uh, that's awful. Let's just not think about it. And I think that's also true what's going on in China, right? And the, the big thing I think about the next election is one will be in the weird situation where there'll be a much bigger story happening at the same time than people will want to read about that we won't be covering. But also, then both parties will, I think, want to pretend that geopolitics aren't going to radically constrain what they can do in office. But they are. Just before we go, um, time for the FT's uh, political stock picks of the week. Uh, George, who, who are you buying or selling? I think probably this week I'm going to talk by Claire Coutinho, someone listeners may not be very familiar with. She's currently the children's minister. She's 38. Very, very staunch Sunak loyalist, Merrill Lynch, KPMG background, MP for the rock solid Surrey seat, East Surrey. Uh, and she's being tipped possibly as, uh, to move into the Treasury as number two there if John Glenn, the current Chief Secretary, goes off to become the new Secretary of State for Defence. She's a little bit, I think we were discussing this this week, weren't we, Lucy? She's a little bit like Sunak in the sense she's quite earnest and quite techy, but she's very much Sunak's kind of politician. Stephen? Well, 
I'm annoyed at that stock pick because it's much better than, <laughs> than mine. I'm not going to meet to it. So I'm going to go for John Glenn, who is the person who I think whose movement will facilitate Claire Coutinho being such a good stock pick. So yeah, I'll, I'll buy John Glenn this week. Who are you buying? Well, I know um, earlier this month, uh, Robert said he was selling Nadine Doris, who he described even at that point as a, a penny stock. Bear with me here. I'm saying buy yes, Doris because I'm just the the sheer brass neck of the woman to come out fighting this week and claim that she's working for her constituents oh no, every day. Level pick. That she's going to, you know, this is going to be the autumn of Nadine Doris. She is a street fighter. She's got her book out. She's got the by-election to call. She's got some serious pain to inflict on Rishi Sunak. This ain't the last you've heard of Nadine. I think you're right there. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> and buy her book, available from all good bookshops in September. George, Stephen, thanks for joining me. And that's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. If you like the podcast, do subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also appreciate positive reviews and ratings. It really does help spread the word. And don't forget to subscribe to Inside Politics, the newsletter from Stephen Bush that comes to your inbox daily. There's a 90-day free trial on offer at the moment. Political Fix was presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Audrey Tinlin. Manuela Saragossa is the executive producer. Original music and sound engineering by Breen Turner. Mixed by Simon Panayi. Cheryl Bramley is the FT's global head of audio. We'll meet again here, same time, same place, next week. <laughs>